You are listening to EE Times on air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Sonny Baines talks to Professor Beatriz Noeda, director of the Groningen Cognitive Systems and Materials Center. You'll find out about how this unique interdisciplinary research center works, why nanoscale ferroelectrics may be useful in brain-like systems, and a little bit about how they're designed and fabricated. But first, today's EE Times current highlights. Untether AI appoints new CEO at, quote, transition point. In an exclusive interview, CEO Chris Walker said he will focus on collaborations and partnerships as well as the company's chiplet-based roadmap. Think your home is smart? Think again. Today's smart devices are more controllable than smart. We're just beginning to see a smart home that will do intelligent things by itself. Europe aims for leadership role in quantum computing. The EuroHPCJU recently selected six EU sites to host the first European quantum computers in hopes to advance quantum technologies. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sami gets deep into nanoscale ferroelectrics with Beatrix Noida from the University of Groningen. After the interview, we will have our usual discussion with Ralph Etienne Kamnitz from Johns Hopkins University about the issues raised. Thanks, Julia. Beatrice Noida is a specialist in condensed matter physics, materials, and nanotechnology, as well as being the director of Cognigron, the Groningen Cognitive Systems and Materials Center. She and her colleagues aim to put adaptive intelligence at the center of their work in physics, chemistry, and electrical engineering, with the goal of creating materials, devices, circuits, and algorithms that can learn. There are links to her work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I met with Beatrice in her office in Groningen. Beatrice Nohida, welcome to Brains and Machines. Can you start by saying a little bit about Cognigron and what it was set up to do? Cognigron is the Groningen Cognitive Systems and Materials Center of the University of Groningen, and it's an initiative that joins expertise of computer science, artificial intelligence, mathematics, physics, and material science. Cognigron is a joint initiative between two big institutes, the Cernic Institute for Advanced Materials, and the Bernoulli Institute for Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, and Computer Science. And the idea of Cognigron is to develop materials that can be at the basis of a future brain-inspired computer. So unlike some networks that focus on these interdisciplinary issues, you not only have a collaboration between people who are in their own departments, but also full-time academics who work just within the institute. How big are you all together and how many of these full-time staff do you have? Yeah, so this is a center that is composed by uh, scientists and academics belonging to two different institutes. And the people that work for Cognigron are about 30 PIs and also about 30 PhD students. It's already a large number. Of them, 
12 PIs have been hired within the Kolnegran Center recently just in order to build Kolnegran as a stronger entity. And the rest are people who were already at the University of Groningen and has interest in this direction of research. So among the people who you've hired, you have a bunch who have engineering backgrounds as opposed to the scientists in the departments that you talked about earlier. Is that right? Exactly. So when we designed Cognigron, we thought, okay, what is the expertise we have in-house and what is the expertise we miss to get this working? And we tried to actually hire people with expertise we were missing. And indeed, we didn't have the neuromorphic engineering expertise. And we are very happy to have people like Elisabeth Akika, Herbert Yeager, or Matthew Cook, who is joining us shortly, and other people that have been joining us with disciplines breaching different expertises that we already had here in Groningen. And we are doing research together to develop materials that can be used for us as the basic elements for brain-inspired computing. So you're a physicist with a specialism in ferroelectric materials. Can you start by explaining exactly what these are? Ferroelectric materials are crystals, and these crystals have dipoles, little dipoles in every unit cell. And this is shift of the charges inside the crystals. And these dipoles are permanent, and they are collectively aligning such that the whole material has what we call spontaneous polarization. And this spontaneous polarization can be switched by the electric field, either up, down, one direction, another direction. And that gives us two different equilibrium states or two bits. So you can Polarization up can be a zero, polarization down can be a one. So how do you read that out? Can you explain? Yeah, you can apply a, a, a electric field to, to the material if you are in one state or the other. So you read and write with electric fields. And that makes these materials very energy efficient compared to other types of memories. So I understand that these ferroelectrics have come in and out of fashion over the decades and that they're having a resurgence lately. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, indeed. So ferroelectrics were the first uh, solid-state memories that were ever proposed in the 50s already. And it was already realized that ferroelectrics could be very good indeed to write a storm data. But then it was also realized that when you make them really small, then you lose this collective behavior of all these dipoles. And then it's very difficult to get the polarization that you need to get in the material at a very small scale. Okay, so that's a little bit like the way with semiconductors we had problems as we miniaturized because you couldn't guarantee that you were going to get a dopant in your little nanometer or so of material. Yeah, you can say that this similar situation, yes. So you were explaining why we've had a resurgence in this field lately. Yes. So after many years of, indeed, a time in which ferroelectrics could not really compete with other types of memory because of the problem that I explained, then it happens that in Germany, the NAMLAB group discovered that a material that no one thought could be ferroelectric uh, is called hafnia, hafnium oxide, was actually ferroelectric at the nanoscale. So this material is not ferroelectric at the large scales, but it becomes ferroelectric at the nanoscale, something that no one had expected. 
And this has revolutionized the field of ferroelectric materials and actually the field of microelectronics, because suddenly we have a new type of memory, which is ferroelectric memory that is scalable, is silico compatible, CMOS compatible, and that can be made really small. Why does that work? It's a long story. <laughs> it is still not clear. And in fact, that's the reason why we are doing fundamental research on this material. We still do not fully understand why this can happen in this particular material. Are there competing theories? As a community, we think that next to the very important role that the dipoles play in all ferroelectrics, that these are the entities that one can switch up and down, that there is a very strong role played by oxygen vacancies and defects in these materials. And this also makes Hafnia ferroelectrics not only a very good ferroelectric, but also a very good memristor. So we're going to get deeper into memristors. We should start out by your explaining what they are. So resistors are variable uh, resistances with a memory. You can store different resistance states in the material. And these are, of course, enormously interesting for memory applications because resistance is the easiest way to actually obtain a memory. And I understand that memristors also specifically change over time based on the activity that goes through them, and that's what makes them really exciting as adaptive memory materials. Yeah, exactly. So the memristance, the resistance of a memristor changes with the charge that passes through the device. And therefore, everything you do to the material is changing the material and is making the material evolve. That's correct. We had your colleague, Elizabeth Akika, on the podcast, and she told us that the materials you're working on can be either non-volatile, which is good for memories, or volatile, which is good for creating programmable delays, neurons, that kind of thing. Can you say something about how you engineer memristors and other materials to have the right kind of properties? There are multiple strategies one can use, and that's actually the reason why you need a full institute of expertise in material science to actually attack these problems, because you have materials from phase change materials or carbon nanotubes to polymers to ferroelectrics, and everyone needs different strategies. I can tell you an example of the materials I work with, these ferroelectrics. One idea is to bring the material close to a phase transition. When the material is close to a phase transition, it's highly susceptible to any little change. This makes the material very energy efficient. Can you explain what you mean by phase transition for people who aren't physicists? Yeah, you can think, for example, on water. When water goes through a phase transition, goes from a liquid phase to a solid phase to a vapor phase. When you have a solid material, you can also have phase transitions within the solid state. For example, in a ferroelectric material, you can have, by changing temperature or changing pressure, you can go from a ferroelectric phase to a non-ferroelectric phase. Or you can go from one ferroelectric phase to a different ferroelectric phase. When you are at the border between these two phases, the material is doubting which direction should take. The atoms are very mobile and flexible, and the material is very responsive to external changes. So you can actually get a very high response to electric fields, for example, with very little input. This makes these materials highly adaptable and very interesting for synaptic devices, for example. So does that mean you would have to keep them very carefully temperature controlled? That's a very good question. 
Precisely. That's the reason why people have not used that strategy so far, because you don't want to keep a device at a particular temperature. And typically you indeed get phase transitions as a function of temperature. What we do in my lab is we get phase transitions as a function of a strain. We strain engineer the materials. We make thin films by a technique is called pulse laser deposition. And we deposit those very thin layers of the material we are interested in on a substrate to give them the right amount of strain such that the material is under the amount of pressure that is needed to move to a new phase. So you actually lock the material at the phase transition, and with a little bit of push by the electric field, you can actually go, move to one phase to another. So we engineer the materials to be at the verge of a transition. I also understand that there's some potential for creating evolving physical interconnects with ferroelectrics. Could you say a little bit about that? Yes, we are really excited about that. So it, it was shown several years ago, actually a decade ago, that ferroelectrics, when they form domains, so domains are regions in the ferroelectric in which this polarization, the dipoles are oriented in different directions. These domains form naturally. You don't need to do anything about it. It's the nature of the material to form these domains. And if you have a very thin layer of the material, the domains can be nanoscopic. So you have domains with different orientations of this memory direction at the nanoscale. And it has been demonstrated that the walls between these domains, which are sometimes one or two atoms thick, are actually conducting and membristive. So it's very interesting because you have a ferroelectric material, which has a permanent memory, a non-volatile memory, but at the same time, you have a network of membristive little wires that are very small. And if you have a material of a few microns, you actually can have millions of these connections at the nanoscale. And these are self-assembled by the material itself. You don't need to go to the clean room and assemble all this network of members of your, yourself. So the idea is, can we use the complexity of materials, a material that self-assemble by the electrical boundary conditions and mechanical boundary conditions at the growth of the material itself, self-assemble in a complex network of membristors and ferroelectrics, can we use that complexity to do some task, learning task to make the material compute? So potentially it could be used as axons or synapses between more formed neurons within a computing substrate. This is what we hope, that we can use that functionality to emulate parts of neuromorphic circuits and that we are able to actually use the physics to do computation. So when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that one of the difficulties about doing this kind of research is that unlike in the past when we were looking for very reliable outputs of devices like from a transistor where everything had to be perfectly repeatable, that actually the problem with memristor research is that if it's completely repeatable, then you haven't done it right because the whole point is it's changing over the evolution of its life. Can you talk about the, the experimental challenges that represents? Yes, indeed. I'm interested in membristors, and you can use membristors uh, in a crossbar array to, to create hardware for artificial neural networks. In that case, you still need a very reliable device. You still need a device in which you know all the resistance states that should be reproducible and repeatable device to device and cycle to cycle. Nevertheless, I'm also very interested in another type of membristors that indeed what we, explain, we discussed before that you can use the complexity of materials to 
compute. And in that case, you want to witness what is the evolution of the material under external stimuli, characterize that, and learn what you can actually do with that physics. In that case, you need very complex materials so that they never go into equilibrium state. They have to be constantly evolving. You need uh, complex systems in which the energy landscapes have many metastable states, minima, that are more or less equally stable so that you never get trapped in some equilibrium state. This needs some design and some thought, but also needs a complete new way to characterize these materials because you need to see how they evolve in the short term, in the long term, and how they react to different stimuli. Maybe they don't react to small fields, but they react to large fields or to light. And you maybe need to get different outputs for different inputs. You need to design the energy landscapes of these materials. And therefore, the way you do experiments with these materials and the way you evolve your intuition on these materials is completely different from what we have been doing with transistors and capacitors and ferroelectrics in the past. So you're characterizing the materials in new ways. And then presumably, you or perhaps your colleagues are looking at the characteristics of these materials and trying to map them on to neural problems, physical things that are happening within neurons where you could exploit that material property. Is that right? That is right. And that is indeed the difficulty and where the multidisciplinary work really comes together and where we really need to learn how to talk each other's language and how to understand each other's problems. And that's where we believe that an environment like Kognichron really can be a huge advantage. Finally, I wanted to ask you a little bit about timescale. I know you're a scientist, not a technologist, but I wanted to ask you how long you thought it might take to get these devices onto real chips. With colleagues like Elisabeth Akik, <laughs> we think that within five years we can have really nice chips that do simple tasks at the edge on a sensor to have a, a computer or a more elaborate kind of device uh, may take longer, but I think the first demonstrators can come already very soon, within five years. Beatrice Nojeda, thanks for coming on to Brains and Machines. You're very welcome. Thanks, Sunny. I loved this interview because I learned a lot. For more about Beatrice's work, please go to brainsandmachines.net. Now we welcome back our regular commentator, Professor Ralph Etienne Katnitz from Johns Hopkins University. Hi, Sunny. Hi, Julia. Happy to come and discuss with you again today. So I personally loved this interview and I was also wondering where that beautiful accent was coming from. And I discovered that she obtained her PhD in 1996 uh, from the Autonomous University of Madrid. And I personally learned a lot of new things in this interview. And I have seen that ferroelectric materials can be used for many different applications. Ferroelectric memories, piezoelectric devices, capacitor sensors, electro-optic devices, and so on and so forth. They are based on the spontaneous electric polarization that they exhibit. But it is not clear to me what is it on the market and why I should prefer them? Can you explain this? I think there are some, but it's not a very big 
area of commercialization. But there are some devices that are ferromagnetic memories that are available to folks. The main thing is that it's really low power, as she explains, that basically, ultimately, because they sit right at the kind of barrier between, you know, the magnetic spin being up or down, so that changes the um, direction in which the field runs, and that can be sensed. So it's easy to, to write a one or a zero by just applying electric field and changing that direction of the dipole. So that makes it really simple and really low power. I think the best thing that she's talking about is the fact that they can make it at the scale of nanometers. So you can, again, get back to this notion that memories can be extremely small, right? The traditional capacitive-based memories, even when you start stacking in three dimensions, the footprint is much larger than what you can do with these individual ferromagnetic memories. So this one website that I have here says, the FERAM devices in production has been shipped to industry market over 21 years. So it's, I think the stuff that's being sold, you know, this one uses PZT for creating the ones and zero. Yeah. So those ones are more standard approaches. When you start getting into the really exotic, small scale and so on, that's where the magic happens. That's why these things are not ready for prime time just yet and being developed. One of the things that's interesting just in looking at technology and seeing things evolve is that, as we all well know, it's not always the best technology that wins out. So I think it's really important to follow all of these different technologies and to understand what potential they might have. It may not be the thing that ends up being important in 10 years' time or in 20 years' time. On the other hand, it may be super important in ways that we hadn't even thought of. Work we've been following within the podcast has been stuff that's being done in the lab, but it hasn't been quite this far into the future. Oh, the, because she talks about the fact that it's from the 50s, right? Ironically, I remember one of my first physics books that I ever had when I was in boarding school in the UK. I was, what, I was 12, 13, had pictures of magnetic memories on it. It was big back then, right? So, so circular, like centimeters, you know, but that was the thing. So it's a back to the future kind of scenario here. Absolutely. But one of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of these ferroelectric devices was this idea of non-infrastructure-based interconnection. And we've never really talked about it more than in passing. And I'd like to get into that a little bit now because I think this is the interview where we can start to see the potential of it. Let me give you a little bit of a vision of what has always bothered me about the way we think about building technological brains and what I'd like to see change. So this idea that the wiring is there or it's not only based on a weight. Now, we talked about Simeon. Simeon was doing something interesting, but we didn't quite know what it was because he didn't get into the technical detail. Oh, Julia, do you know what it was now? Have you talked to him about it? Why don't you tell us, actually, before I move this onwards? Yeah, I had a discussion with Simeon, and he confirmed that in his case, it was not creating new wires, but it was rewiring so that the synapse could change a different as afferent. But there is the strong intention to use the polymeric dendritic 
growth, creating new connections by a potential field. So this actually was another comment that I wanted to make, the fact that there is this nice parallelism between what uh, Sim has talked about and what Beatrice said with new links, new interconnects. But what bothers me is how can you guide the creation of a network? How can you force the network to grow in a specific way? So one of the, the things that really influenced me when I was in my 20s outside of the neuromorphic community was there was a lot of work being done, obviously, in evolutionary software and building evolutionary AI one way or another, but also in evolutionary hardware. And there was a guy called Adrian Thompson who was down at the University of Sussex. I think he's still there, um, but I haven't been in touch with him in probably decades. But he did this really interesting interesting experiment where he did an evolutionary algorithm on his hardware. And what he found was that the algorithm was able to exploit some parasitics in the board he was using, something that you wouldn't have even been able to encode if you were doing it as a model, right, as a, a, a simulation. So the solution it found, the best solution, was only able to be seen because it was done right on the hardware. And this is something we talk about a lot, right? About the physics and how you, there are some things you just can't simulate. So it occurs to me maybe pathways that don't exist at one time, but there's a little bit of electronic pressure. And over time, they're able to build up and these connections get stronger, whether it's an electronic kind of thing or, as you say, a polymer. I don't know, maybe it's more of an idealized thing, but I like the idea that we can grow the infrastructure we need rather than having this huge mesh of switches that have to be weighted and turned on and off. And then you have to try and delete them to have sparsity and all of this stuff. It just seems a lot cleaner to grow what you need and have it naturally atrophy if it's not needed. The only thing that it seems to me is that growing things takes energy, right? So um, Bob Zucker from Yale had a really nice paper on evolutionary computation, in fact, showing how veins form in a leaf and how things grow and the connections and so on, right? So those are cool examples of how networks can be formed right? By essentially just solving some diffusion equations and understanding the boundary conditions and so on. But now you're talking about when you are intending to have a particular outcome that you're looking for, how do you influence that growth in a way that is actually going to achieve it in such a way that you can, if you don't get it, you can go back and say, oh, that was wrong. Let me do it again. So do you, in that big, massive switch network, Sandy, that you just said you don't like, which actually I'm a little bit more inclined to liking it. In fact, that's what an FPGA is in the end. It's a big network of, of switches that connect certain, connect certain logical blocks together. That is, in a sense, ideal for prototyping ideas. Right? You go back and forth, you fix it, you change it, you redo it, and so on. Whereas some of these growth-based networks may be such a situation where you cannot easily go back. Once you've expended the energy in that direction, that's it. You use your reserve. But the direction that things seem to be going, at least um, my impression is from the papers I've read this year, 
seems to be that we're going for a hybrid approach, right? So on the one hand, you're going to have certain things that are hardwired that are maybe learned at a central system and then sort of implanted, if you like, onto the edge system or the robotic system. But then you're going to have extra bits that learn, right? So that you're hopefully optimizing between not having to do absolutely everything from scratch on the one hand, but not being set in stone when you come out of the factory on the other hand. And it just seems to me that this might be a really nice complementary way of being able to do that last bit of learning. So yes, it might take more energy, but if you've done the bulk of the learning in advance, then perhaps there could be a place for this. I don't know. Right. right. So one other thing that you said that kind of triggered me, you know, like you said, this guy, uh, what was that, Sussex? So there was another chap, I think from around that same time frame, same area that was doing self-adaptive FPGAs. This guy was nuts. He had this thing where he was talking about how these self-growing or self-adaptive FPGAs were going to take over the world and there's going to be a war between them. Are you by any chance talking <laughs> about Hugo de Garris? There you go. You got it. Yes, that guy. <laughs> yes, remember? I went to visit... <laughs> This is where being very old helps, Julia, because I actually went to visit Hugo de Garris, the one and only time I've been to Japan, which was in uh, 1999. So I actually went to visit his lab. He's claimed to be building a robot cat, if I okay. have it. Okay. But, the, the but there's level. been a few of those. There's been a few of those, especially out of Japan, right? Yeah, yeah but he had a huge amount of funding, as I recall. So he was based in Nara. And yeah, I thought my analysis was not so different from your analysis <laughs> in that case, but it was a very different, I don't think he was doing anything really adaptive related to the hardware, not in the way I'm okay. talking about. So what Adrian Thompson had done is I'm pretty sure it was FPGA based in the sense that's how you get your reconfigurability in your circuits, but it was an FPGA on top of a board that did various other things. And it was able to, as I say, get the parasitics from these other elements within the board and exploit those through this evolutionary algorithm. I found that very profound, just as a, an idea of how you can use learning to latch on to things that you might not consciously ever be aware Exist. Exists. Yeah. First of all, you're not old. You're experienced. Let me say <laughs> this. <laughs> but I have actually another question. And when you asked to Beatrice, uh, what is a phase transition for the people that uh, are not physicists? You made me laugh because we have this running joke in this podcast that we're actually being an engineer feels being a minority, part of a minority. But actually, for once, I knew that. But I'm confused on another point, and I need your help in this regard. It is clear to me that these materials are efficient because they react very nicely to small inputs. But as you said, they are temperature dependent. So Beatrix works on the strain of the material so that even though it's less reliable, she can look at the evolution 
of the material. But I, I wonder, the temperature problem is still in place, right? There's still the same problem of the temperature. I think, Julia, the answer to your question is, with all of these more exotic and more analog solutions, temperature dependence is almost universally a problem. But, but you can look at it as being a bugger feature in the sense that you can do learning and make it robust to whatever the changing environmental conditions. So Katie Schumann was doing a lot of work building models and the idea was that you would evolve your neural networks in different ways based on different noise parameters and different sizes of networks and things. I, I hope I'm representing her work properly. But the idea is that you can compensate for variations in behavior of neurons as long as during the training phase, you are pre-compensating for that and you're making it robust to those changes in temperature. Would you agree with that, Ralph? At least ideally, that's the way it should work? Yeah, I guess I don't know enough to really, you know, to have a, a strong opinion one way there. It sounds reasonable, but I would have to understand a little bit more about the, the system at hand. Yeah, she's preconditioning the films, right? She's putting it on a substrate that applies the strains in a particular way, so that then when she applies the electric field, she's just simply getting them over the energy bump, right? To, to, to spin it one way or the other. And in a similar way, I suppose, with this temperature examples of the training that you're referring to, Sunny, right? You do it in what maybe in one temporal environment, and then you apply it in a different temporal environment. But I guess it depends on the applications and the specifics of the thing. But one quick thing I want to say, though, you know, um, so there's a whole movement now by this Sotaru Nakasuji, where they're looking at anti-ferromagnetism as a mechanism for getting memories as well as computation, right? So it falls under the quantum material space. And this is all room temperature, which is another cool thing about it because it came to mind because you're talking about the temperature aspect of what she was working on. And what's also supposed to be the case in, in a sense of ferromagnetism, my understanding of it is that what happens is all the dipoles in the domain flips at the same time and points in a certain direction. And that's why certain materials become permanent magnets. Whereas with anti-magnetism, there is no alignment in the same direction in a permanent way. So you don't get this non-volatile memory aspect of it in a sense, right? However, it is much easier to realign the directions and they use Hall effect. You can measure the Hall effect of certain pieces or certain parts of the material getting aligned in a certain way and so on. So that apparently is supposed to be even more energy efficient than the uh, ferromagnetic way. And so it's good to see that there are counterparts. Or, or but it's volatile, right? So that means that in order to maintain its uh, state, in order to maintain what it's learned, you have to continually be applying energy to it, You have it, to right? refresh. Yeah, it's not too different than the dynamic RAM, right? The DRAM, you have to refresh, right? So I would imagine that you would have to refresh it as well. Now, when I had a conversation uh, with uh, Satoru, I mean, you know, interacting with it is really hard, <laughs> like getting information back in and out of it, right? So it's still very much a, you know, despite this one nature paper that's been cited like 1,200 times from... 2015 is still a very much a work in progress. At some point, I presume that they'll come to a better way to make it more permanent. But right now is one of these things where I presume you would have to refresh every so often in order to get the best, to get more 
long-term memories out of it. But it's supposed to be extremely smart, extremely fast. And again, that same notion of being easy to flip the states. And my understanding, again, is that the domains were extremely small, even maybe smaller than the paramagnetic domains. One of the difficulties in neuromorphic engineering generally is how to avoid disappearing down a rabbit hole of some direction that is absolutely related to neuromorphic engineering. And materials, of course, is one of them. But you can spend absolutely your whole life and five other people's lives just studying one material or one one potential material system. Uh, I remember when I was doing my PhD, and I think this is common with PhDs in general, right? You spend the first year just figuring out what you're not going to pay attention to out of all of the million things that you could pay attention to. But I think that's a constant difficulty when you're in a really interdisciplinary field is that you have to have a certain amount of knowledge about all of the different areas, but to a certain extent, you also have to let them be. And I always find that quite difficult, knowing where to draw the line there. So one other thing I wanted to say about the um, interview. So if I understand this correctly, this is what she's basically saying, right? So you have these domains, then they are nanometer domains, that, and you could have one Part of the domain has a spin in a certain direction, another one in a different direction, and so on and so forth, right? But the memristive component was the transport between the domains. It was like electrons going from one domain to another. That's the impression that I got was where the memristive re- so, thing. So it was like, so there- yeah. So I think if you I think you can either use it straightforwardly as a memory, which is what um, most people talk about. I think for the stuff that I was interested in, because of my weird interest in these growing interconnects, I think what she was saying is that essentially you have this random collection of nano domains, and slowly you can get them to line up, and once they line up, it can create a pathway. But it's the electronic pathway, right? It's, it's yeah. electrons moving. That was that was my understanding. Now, I could have that wrong, but that was my understanding, is that eventually you could get some kind of electronic pathway that's happened because you've gotten all of these domains in the way to line up because of the environmental conditions of presumably the, the stimulation that's been near them in the past. I don't know exactly how that would work as a kind of device. I don't know that anyone does. I don't know that work has been done, but that's what I have in my head anyway yeah, when and, I and, imagine it. And me too. And the way that I would that I'm imagining it is that basically the electric field is perpendicular to the direction in which these electronic pathways would grow. So you use the electric field to affect the domains. Then because of the domains, as you say, lines up or near lines up, um, that allows the connectivity between the domain electronically to be variable. And maybe that's the memristive element. And maybe as more and more current flow perpendicular, then that changes the alignment and makes it more, more conductive or less conductive and might be the path. That's exactly what I imagine. And if you think about it, we had Malika um, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of podcasts ago talking about the way memristors work and the filaments. And that's, again, the way I imagine it. Now, this is just my little mind here, but I imagine these literally these kind of filaments of nano domains 
lining up and becoming active, providing a path, and then more of them providing a path as they want to line up with their neighbors based on what's been flowing through them. Yeah, and I suppose there is also the, the interaction between the magnetic field of the dipole, if you will, and the electronic interactions, which has to be the right-hand rule or whatever. They all have to be perpendicular to each other. So that also has another component of directing the way that the electronic flow is going to happen, which is, yeah, actually, it's very interesting. I mean, it just, yeah. I've read an article talking about the ferroelectric uh, random access memory manufacturers, the best in 2023, and there are Fujitsu, Components America, Infineo, and Technologies, and uh, Future Electronics. So still, I don't understand, like, how can we ensure uh, reliabilities with, with these technologies? How safe I am to use this technology? I don't fully grasp how severe is the problem of the temperature. Like I'm looking at a chip by a company called Ramtron that is effectively what they refer to as a ferroelectric ram. And that's room temperature. So I think a lot of it might already, like the stuff like Fujitsu and whatnot, what they're doing might already be operating at room temperature. So in a sense, what Beatrice is pursuing might be the more exotic version that has all these other properties. And that's why she's linking up with folks like Elisabetta to get some of the neuromorphic element to it and so on. But the pure FE RAM that folks are actually selling, that seems to be in existence and running at room temperature. So I wanted to say that one of the reasons that I interviewed Beatrice as well as Elisabetta, is I think this idea of having people with these different specialties working together is really important. And I know that's one of the things that she's trying to make happen there. So the idea that you don't have physicists working in a vacuum, physicists, chemists, building these materials, building potential simple devices, but that you have someone with the brain-inspired experience looking over their shoulder and saying, ah, that could be useful for this. I think that's really important. And it was one of the things that I found really interesting in my visit to Groningen and interviewing both of them. I think that's a good place to stop. Thanks to Sunny again for another great interview and Ralph for the insightful comments as usual. In our next episode, Sunny will be talking to Professor Toby Delbruck of the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, Switzerland. We hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Beatrice Noeda. EE Times Current is available through all the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode along with other resources. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Greg McRae and Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>